Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He'll never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Please join with me in singing two more stanzas of Psalm 10. We'll sing uh, stanzas 5 and 7.
as mentioned, our text for this service is Psalm 10, so no need to read it again. Uh, But maybe you might want to keep it open while we explore this text together. Brothers and sisters, what would you say if I asked you what was the most popular type of music in the world? I was interested, so I looked it up this past week, and according to one website, at least, uh, country music accounts for about 10% of global music sales. Rock, my favorite, only 12%. Uh, Hip-hop is up to 18%. Uh, But none of these lead... Uh, None of these are the most popular type of music in the world. Actually, it's not even close. Pop music dominates with 27% of album sales worldwide. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't actually find that too surprising. Uh, First of all, I didn't think my guesses uh, would have been too far off from that anyway. And secondly, this isn't the kind of thing that I expect myself to know. I don't know about you. I'm willing to admit I don't really have my pulse on the global music scene, and that's okay. Uh, I don't know about you. But what if I asked you, not about the most popular song genres in the world, but rather about the most popular song genres in the Bible? It can actually be tough to classify psalms uh, into different genres, because often they fit into multiple genres. But nevertheless, there is one genre that clearly dominates them all. I wonder if you're surprised to find that by far the most common type of psalm in the Bible is the psalm of lament. Lament psalms make up about 40% of the Psalter. More than that, elements of lament are present in an additional 30% of the psalms. If you're doing the math, 70% total. Many of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament are psalms of lament. If you look for it, you can find prayers of lament in the book of Job, and of Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Revelation, and also, not to mention, the entire book of Lamentations. I don't know about you, but when I started looking at this, I was actually pretty shocked when I first learned it. Uh, I'm not surprised to not have my finger on the pulse of the songs of the world, but I would have expected myself to have my finger on the pulse of the songs of the Bible. How about you? Did you know there is that much lament in Scripture? Well, lament psalms are probably the most common type of psalm in Scripture. Yet, I believe they're also one of the types that we are most likely to avoid, aren't we? Laments are often the kind of psalms that we don't really know what to do with. A wonderful book that I've recommended to some of you and let a few of you borrow, and that much of this sermon is based off many of the insights, is Mark Rogop's Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And that book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, it seeks to help Christians like us discover the grace and lament in Scripture. And as Mark Rogop explains, we should discover the beauty of these laments because they're everywhere. And when we do, when we study them, We'll see how these psalms of lament, they powerfully come and they meet us where we are, but they don't leave us where we are. Laments, they come and they meet us in our pain and suffering in this world, but they don't leave us there. They bring us to a place of trust and praise in God. 
And so today we'll look at the theme of lament, using Psalm 10 as our guide. And maybe if you've been raised in the church, then you've heard about different acronyms that you can use for prayer. Probably the most famous one is ACTS. Have you ever heard of ACTS for prayer? A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication, or your requests. Well, Mark Rogop says that if you study laments, you'll see that they typically follow a T-cat structure, which doesn't sound as good as ACTS, but T-cat. And we'll look at Psalm 10 in that way, because it describes Psalm 10 perfectly. You'll see that in the laments, we learn to turn, and then complain, and then ask, and then trust. So first of all, laments teach us to turn. And in our lives, I I think we have to agree, there are many types of different pain and suffering that we can interact with, that we can meet in our day-to-day lives. There's suffering all around us in this world. Creation is groaning, as the Bible says. And now with the internet and with the news on our TVs, it might be more apparent than ever about how creation really is groaning. We can so easily, if we want to, we can hear about all kinds of suffering and persecution. We can hear about natural disasters and wars. You can look up on your phone right now, and you can find out about horrible, unthinkable atrocities. People, especially women and children, being exploited. And there's suffering all around us in the world. And there's also suffering a lot closer to home. In our own communities, in our own churches, in our own families, there's often pain and illness and death and struggles. And that's what we see in Psalm 10 as well. There are some psalms in the Bible that are communal laments, and they they often talk about great tragedy and evil out in the world, far away, out in the nations. But this psalm seems to be very personal. It's about injustice and sorrow close to home. And the first thing that we learn in laments is something very basic, but it's something that I found I really need to work on, and maybe you need to work on it as well. When trouble comes our way, when we experience sorrow or when we run into it, we all need to learn, first of all, to turn. Mark Rogop explains that there's two main ways that we tend to respond to pain and suffering in our lives, and they resonated with me. I wonder if they'll resonate with you. One way we can deal with pain and suffering is to deny it. If people ask us how we're doing and things are actually going bad, we'll tell them we're fine. If things are going bad, often we'll try and tell ourselves that we're fine. And maybe when things are going bad, we go to God in prayer and we try and pretend to Him like everything is fine. We can deny it. We can act like things are no big deal. On the other hand, Mark Rogop explains, sometimes we can do the opposite. Sometimes we don't deny our pain, but instead we wallow in our pain. We can fixate on our suffering. And that way we never make any progress or begin to move on. But Mark Rogop helpfully notes that the Psalms of Lament avoid both of these pitfalls. The Psalms of Lament, they're all over the Bible, and they don't. They never deny that sometimes we're hurting and wrestling on the inside. The Psalms of Lament make it perfectly clear that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. That's a beautiful, wonderful message, isn't it? It's one that we all need to hear. But the Psalms of Lament, they also, they, they meet us there but they don't leave us there. Psalms of Lament teach us to admit our pain and sorrow, to take it and to turn. Turn to the one who can do something about it. Turn to the one we should talk to about it. As we read in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, God himself 
says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. And that's the first thing we need to learn to do is stop denying, stop wallowing, and, and turn. And we learn it from the psalmist, like the author of Psalm 10, likely David. He, he's sick with sorrow. And so what does he do? He goes to God and he talks about it. I once heard a sermon one time. A minister was talking about how sometimes we feel lonely. We feel like God's far away. We feel uh, like he's nowhere to be found. And all he said was, if you miss God, go tell him about it. That's beautiful advice. It's the advice that we see in the Psalms. And actually, we learn this advice not just in the Psalms, but we actually see it even more clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a life full of suffering, as we do. And what do we read about Jesus? Luke tells us that often he withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I once read in a book, and it always stuck with me, uh, that we see Christ throughout his whole life and everything he did. Jesus Christ was completely dependent on prayer. And so the book asks, if Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was completely dependent on prayer... How much more should you and I be completely dependent on prayer in our lives? Especially towards the end of his life, on the night he was betrayed, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus do what so often we try and do? Did Jesus put on a brave face and pretend everything was just all right? Of course not. He didn't wallow in self-pity either. But what did Jesus do towards the end of his life when he was about to be betrayed? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and for hours and hours, he prayed. He turned. He turned to his God. He turned to him in his time of agony. When he said that he was sorrowful unto death, he took it before the Lord. So first, we learn from laments to turn to God. And secondly, we learn not just to turn to God, but to complain to God. That's the second point where we'll spend most of our time on uh, this service. And this is where lamenting gets difficult doesn't it? Because this is where we get uncomfortable. Think about someone who is a complainer. Complaining is annoying, isn't it? If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you can probably think of some times in the Bible where uh, people complained to the Lord and they were punished. They were called out for grumbling. They were rebuked for grumbling before the Lord. And so we should be very careful here. I don't even love the word complain, though that's what Mark Rogop uses, and sometimes that's even what the Psalms use. The Psalms of Lament, though, they, they never tell us to be angry at God. They never tell us to lash out at God or pridefully accuse God of anything, of course. But what they do tell us very clearly is that we are absolutely allowed to humbly bring our questions before God. I just think we should reflect on that for a minute. Think about what an awesome God we have. Uh, I think all of us can imagine, maybe we can even think of some people in our lives who would never allow any questions, uh, especially not questions that undermine them. Maybe you've had teachers or bosses where it felt like that, where never say anything to rub them the wrong way or suggest that they're doing something wrong. Or we can imagine someone far more powerful. Think of a politician or a great king or an emperor Someone who might fly into a rage if anyone ever dared question what they were doing. And yet we can notice in the Psalms of Lament something remarkable about our God. Of course, he doesn't say that we can grumble or complain or lash out against him. But he does show us in the Psalms of Lament that we can bring questions to him. That's awesome. 
Imagine a boss or a ruler or a parent or a teacher who doesn't let you rebuke them or scream at them, but does allow you to come with humble and honest questions. And psalms like this one show that the Lord, the God of the universe, welcomes our questions. He invites our questions. More than that, something that struck me this week is the God of the universe helps you and me to articulate our questions. God didn't just accept the psalms of lament from the poets, but he gave us the psalms of laments to help us articulate our, peel, our, our pain, our questions, our feelings, and, and to, to speak these words to him. That is a great father that we have, a heavenly father who helps us articulate our pain better than we can. That's what we have modeled for us in Psalm 10 and other prayers of lament, where we see that we're welcome to bring our well-reasoned complaints, our questions before God. And this is what dominates most of Psalm 10, if you look at it. Verses 1 to 11, they're all the psalmist's questions and observations for God. But notice how the psalmist brings these before God. He doesn't just complain about his feelings, but there's a certain careful and respectful way that he brings these issues to God's attention. As Dirt Cloud's Deep Mercy explains it, a lament, honestly and specifically, names a situation or circumstance that is painful, wrong, or unjust. In other words, it names a situation or circumstance that does not seem to align with God's character and therefore does not seem to us to make sense within God's kingdom. The psalmist is crying out here because he knows our Lord. He knows that our God is a just God, a holy God, an all-seeing and an all-knowing God. And so he humbly and specifically complains that in spite of all who God reveals himself to be, nevertheless, he looks around and he sees pain and injustice. Our God reveals over and over again that he cares for the poor. He cares for the weak. He cares for the orphans. Yet the psalmist looks and he sees the poor. He sees the widows and the orphans. And it doesn't look like God's caring for them. And so he brings the, this complaint. He doesn't understand he says, Lord, the wicked are boasting. You say you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble, but the wicked, they're exalted. He says the greedy, they curse and renounce the Lord. He says they're ambushing and crushing the innocent. He compares them to a lion or a hunter. He says, yet these wicked men who you say you oppose, Lord, they prosper at all times. They say in verse 6, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And the psalmist laments because it looks to him like the wicked person's right. And he doesn't get it. The psalmist makes it clear why this is his complaint. It doesn't make sense with what he knows about God. As Mark Rogop says, it feels to the psalmist like God is being ungodlike. The wicked are being oppressive. And the world, but even worse, it seems that the psalmist is focused on in Israel. The people in the covenant community, in the Old Testament version of the church, it's the wicked who are prospering, succeeding. And it is the, the faithful who are being crushed, blown away like chaff. And so the psalmist goes to the Lord in prayer. He turns to him and he asks, what in the world is going on, God? He says in the first verses of our text, the first verse, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? 
You're really going to stand at a distance and just watch this, Lord? That doesn't match up with what I know about you. The second question is even more disturbing. He asked, Lord, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The first question is a passive one. It's simply suggesting that God is staying back, standing far off. The second one is active. It's asking God, why are you hiding? You can think of it as a child. Think of a child who is hurt or scared or suffering. And first, the psalmist gives us a picture of his dad standing too far away to help and staying there. But then he gives the picture of his father not only standing far off, but running away and hiding rather than helping his boy. The psalmist is suffering, and so he turns to God with his complaint. Actually, the psalmist is more concerned with other people's suffering, which lament will often help us do, not focus on ourselves, but focus on the injustice around us. And so the psalmist outlines what's going on all around him, and he says, God, this isn't right. I know this isn't in accordance with uh, your will. So what is going on? Where are you? And this is important, because this is the right way to complain, so to speak. It's not grumbling about annoyances. It's not lashing out to God in anger, but going to God and carefully and accurately, humbly describing what's wrong, because this doesn't match God's character what he shows about himself. And this is how we form healthy relationships in our lives too, isn't it? It's not completely new. Imagine for a second that you're struggling with your spouse or with your significant other, uh, or you have a complaint against your teacher or your parents or someone else. I at least can think of times in my life where I've experienced this. What happens if you just deny it and just try and push it down? Well, eventually it can explode. It can erode the relationship, right? What happens if you don't suppress it, but instead you go and talk to other people about it? You gossip and you complain. Or you can get more and more bitter. But instead, what ideally you should do is you bring it to them. That forces you to think it through. That forces you to be reasonable. And go to the place where the issue is. Talk to your spouse and say, this is what I'm feeling. You don't deny it. You don't wallow in it. But at the same time, you never lash out at them over it. That would erode the relationship too. You come with honesty and with humility, and you ask them about it. God shows in lament that using his word, we can do the same with him. He actually gives us models. We don't have to do it on our own. We can say to the Lord, I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how this fits with your character or with your kingdom or with your ultimate will and plan. And Mark Rogoff, he gives a really, a really powerful example of this from his own life. Uh, Mark Rogoff tells a painful story from his life where him and his wife, they were pregnant, or, or his wife was pregnant, and they were looking forward to a baby. And unfortunately, they had a full-term stillborn baby. And of course, they were absolutely heartbroken. And Mark Rogoff explains that over the next few years, it was very rough for him and for his wife especially because they were plagued with multiple miscarriages after that. Finally, he says, after a number of years, they were pregnant again, and they had multiple pregnancy tests to confirm. And so they went in for an ultrasound, and they could tell just from the doctor's face that something was badly wrong. And he said to them, I'm so sorry. And he explained to them that they had something that's known as a false pregnancy. His wife's body was getting ready for a baby, but they're actually... There wasn't even a baby inside. And so Mark Rogop says that him and his wife, they went out to the car and they cried. 
They were so upset. And so they knew in their sorrow they had to turn. They had to go to God and talk about this. They had to pray. But how do you pray about something like that? Well, he explains that they prayed humbly and they prayed as honestly as they could. All they could muster to say was this. God, I know you're not mean, but Lord, this feels mean. That's how we can bring our complaints to God. Say, Lord, we know you. We trust you. We know that you're good. How is this good? Lord, we know you work all things for the good of those who love you, and I love you. How can this be for my good? We can go to the Lord and just be honest. When things aren't okay, when things don't make sense to us, our Lord remembers we're only dust. As Mark Rogop says, the Bible meets us where we live. The Psalms of Lament, they meet us where we live. Our God knows our weakness. He knows what we're feeling. And we can see that in the laments. And we can see that even more clearly, that the Lord anticipates our needs. He knows what we need better than we do. And he meets us in our needs. We can see that even more clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God himself really did come down and met us where we live. Met us where we were at. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in a world full of sorrow and suffering. We desperately needed help. And God knows. And God sent down his son to live a life of suffering himself. He stepped into that world. We have a high priest who came down willingly into our sin and suffering, who experienced sin and pain, who laid down his life to free us from our sin and suffering ultimately. And now we can go to him in prayer. We have a high priest who understands. And in fact, when Jesus Christ himself was laying down his life as a sacrifice for you and me, when he was bringing us back to God by experiencing hellish agony on the cross, what did Jesus Christ do? He went to a psalm of lament, didn't he? Jesus Christ took the words of a God-given complaint to explain the anguish of his soul. Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Mark Rogop explains, in this way, the psalms of lament uh, in our lives Uh, They take the painful questions that once created a barrier between us and God, and they use them now as a vehicle to draw us closer to God. That's the beauty of laments. And so we turn, we complain. But the key element of lament is that we don't stop with complaining. We don't stop with hopelessness. As Jesus Christ met us where we were at, but didn't leave us where we were at, Likewise, the Psalms of Lament come and meet us in our pain, but they don't leave us in our pain. They draw us out towards trust and praise. So first we learn to complain and then, uh, or to turn and then to complain, and we'll move through the next two points much more quickly. Third, we we learn to ask. Specifically, we ask that God might act in accordance with his will once and for all, that he might act in accordance with his promises. We can absolutely ask our God to do that. If you have Psalm 10 open in front of you, look at verses 12 and 15, and you can see the psalm is doing exactly that. After talking about the seemingly hopeless situation around him, the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The psalmist looks at the world and he sees, 
It doesn't match what he knows of God's character and his kingdom. And so he brings his questions. He brings his complaint. And then he asks God to act according to his nature and according to his promises. He says, Lord, I know you're a righteous judge, so judge righteously as you promised that you would. Hold these people to account as you have said that you would. I know you care for the weak and afflicted and oppressed, Lord. You've said it time and time again. So do not forget the afflicted, Lord. Lift up your hand to defend them. Finally, he says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. And many people get turned off by that phrase, and I think you can tell why. Break their arms? That sounds extremely graphic. Psalmists, or sorry, commentators rightly explain that the psalmist likely doesn't mean this literally at all. Uh, the arm was an expression. Uh, the arm meant someone's power. And so the psalmist is praying that God will take away the wicked oppressor's power to cause harm, to oppress people, to hurt the innocent. His power to ambush like a lion and crush the helpless. But I really like what Sinclair Ferguson says about that verse. He says, think about it for a minute. So what if the psalmist does mean it literally? Is that really so bad? Consider the pain and suffering that we've heard of in the world. Think of powerful people using their God-given arms to hurt and crush and destroy. Break their arms, Lord. Take them away. We know the Lord will take away their ability to harm at the last day, and that is what the psalmist is praying for. And this is what we see the psalmist doing, asking God to act and then leaving it in his hands because he does trust him. And this is exactly what Christ did as well. We read in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at Jesus Christ, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And likewise, we can see once again when Christ was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to bear our sins on the cross, with sweat dripping like drops of blood, Jesus Christ called out, and he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And so Jesus asked, but he doesn't end up with asking. And we see the same thing in Psalm 10 with the psalmist. The psalmist moves from turning to complaining to asking, and finally to trusting. That's our fourth and final point. Christ, too, moves from asking to trusting as well. Christ says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What gets the psalmist through the pain uh, to obedience and even to praise is not that the circumstances around him change. They don't. It's not that he gets all the answers that he wants or his heart desires, but what gets him through is saying, Lord, I know you. I still know your character, and I trust you, Lord. And that's the beautiful place where the psalmist ends up in our psalm. I love how you can look at the last couple of verses of our psalm and see the answers to all of the questions the psalmist raised earlier. He says, it seems to me, Lord, that you're far away. It seems to me like you're hiding, he says in verse 1. And yet after turning and complaining and asking, he ends up saying, I know better. I know that you're not far away. I know that you're not hiding. In fact, I know exactly where you are, he says in a sense. I know you're sitting on your throne ruling. He says in verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The psalmist suggested maybe God was far off ignoring uh, the suffering of the weak. But he says in verse 17, O Lord, you hear the afflicted. 
In fact, the psalmist says, you hear the desires of the afflicted. Isn't that remarkable? The God of the universe, universe, he doesn't just hear the words of the afflicted. He hears the hearts, the desires of the afflicted. The Lord, he says, he knows he won't stand by and do nothing. He says, you will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear. I love that picture as well. The God of the universe, we get a picture of him stooping down close, drawing his ear near to the suffering and brokenhearted. The psalmist knows you will listen. You are listening. You won't stay back. You're a very present help in trouble. And he finally says, Lord, you do see. You do note mischief and vexation, he says in verse 14, that you may take it into your hands. You do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. He says to end the psalm. And so the psalmist meets us where we're at in the world full of suffering, but he doesn't leave us there. He takes the suffering to God in honesty and humility, and he ends up confident once again because he knows God and trusts God, and he's confident that he can and will answer. He will respond. He will take action. He will arise, and he will somehow, we don't know how, but he will turn injustice even to his people's good. And brothers and sisters, that's where we need to end today. We need to realize the psalmist back then, writing likely a thousand years before Christ, his trust was not wrongly placed. He was absolutely right. The proof is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. There we see that God saw all of his suffering and ours. He saw all of our needs. He was willing to come and meet us in our suffering. And he's willing and able to turn even the worst injustices in the world for our good. We see that only in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came down, though he was the only truly innocent man, and he paid the price for your soul and mine. Jesus Christ experienced the greatest injustice and suffering in all of human history to bring us back to God. And now we know that we read, when we read this psalm of lament, it's not just that... Uh, Jesus can understand our words, but really as we read these psalms of lament, we can understand better that these are Jesus' words first. Jesus is the one who saw injustice that we can't even understand. He's the one that suffered in a way that we'd never know. He's the one who cried out, my God, my God, why are you hiding yourself from me? Our God will never actually hide himself from us because he hid himself from his son instead. We know that our God already did the hardest part. He sent his son to lay down his life to set us free. And he's promised us that he's coming back to wipe away every tear from our eyes, but not yet. Wait a little bit longer. Trust. Trust. He knows this world doesn't yet look anything like what he made it to be. It doesn't look like or feel like God is king yet. And he's taking action. He's working on it. For now, we lament. And he inclines his ear close and he listens. He takes note of all of your pain and mine. He keeps all of our tears in a bottle, he writes down. So we're honest about our sorrow and our pain. We don't deny our pain, but we don't wallow in it either. We turn, we bring it to God. We lament, bridging the gap from pain to praise by turning, then complaining, then asking, and finally, trusting. Amen.